Ken Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Clint Smith. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. His book won the National Book Critics Circle Award for nonfiction and was named one of the New York Times 10 Best Books of 2021. Smith grew up in New Orleans, where he went to Benjamin Franklin High School for his first three years of high school, and later attended Audie International School in Houston, Texas, for his senior year. This was because he and his family fled New Orleans due to Hurricane Katrina. He attended Davidson College, graduated in 2010 with a BA degree in English, and subsequently obtained a PhD from Harvard University. He is now a staff writer at The Atlantic. How the Word is Passed is the story of Monticello Plantation in Virginia. It is the story of Angola, a former plantation turned maximum security prison in Louisiana that is filled with black men who work across the 18,000 acre land for virtually no pay. And it is the story of Blanford Cemetery, the final resting place of tens of thousands of Confederate soldiers. I'm joined by 20 of my Harvard classmates. Oh, hi. Um, Doug Shapiro, I'm a retired physician and uh, behavioral ecologist living in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I just got back from St. John in the Virgin Islands, where my uh, son had a, a marriage ceremony, and then Holland, Michigan, uh, oh. for a marriage ceremony for my my wife's uh, oldest daughter. Oh, okay, Jeff. Uh, hi, Jeff Fox, also from the class of '63. Uh, formerly a sociologist specializing mostly in Latin American issues. Uh, now writing fiction, and I'm back home in Spain right now, southern Spain. Okay, uh, Ron Blau. Also class of 63, um, worked in TV and video ever and writing ever since uh, a week after graduation when I went to work for WGBH. Still doing some of that. Okay, uh, John. Uh, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I worked for the university for a number of years. Uh, editing and writing. Hi, uh, Pete DeLisboy. I'm an editor and writer. And uh, after Harvard, I worked for SNCC in Southwest Georgia. And uh, two of the memorable and disturbing uh, historical visits I've made in recent years are the uh, the prison camp in Andersonville. And uh, the lynching memorial in Montgomery, both incredible, disturbing visits. Okay. Bill. Bill Collins, retired from the Navy and came to South Carolina to work on nuclear waste cleanup. And I'm retired now from doing that. And I'm still in South Carolina. Liz. Hi, um, I'm Liz Morey. I'm uh, located in Tacoma Park now and uh, just am an incredible fan of your book. I give it to everybody that I possibly can. I really, really love it. 
and um, I'm uh, the descendant of enslaving ancestors and am very interested in finding out more about them and also belong to coming to the table and went to their national gathering in June. David Arthur, um, grew up in Guatemala, Puerto Rico, and uh, Brazil. And after, after graduate school, at business school, I went uh, and lived for two years in Medellin, Colombia, a few, few hundred miles north of Jerry, who was in, uh, in Peru at the time. I uh, came back to the US and basically have spent a career in public broadcasting. Uh, not quite as long as Ron's, but in public broadcasting at WNET in New York and WHYY here in Philadelphia, where Maureen and I have lived for many decades. Hey, Anne. Uh, hi, I'm Ann Groves. I'm a mostly retired psychotherapist. I'm currently dividing my time between D.C. and uh, the Bay Area and um, where my two children uh, have decided to live. Um, I, class of 63, didn't get involved actively in the civil rights movement until after I graduated with uh, the March on Washington and the SNCC summer. I didn't actually go to the South, but I worked uh, in the North to support and get material to send down there. Um, and I'm looking for ways to continue to be involved because I, I don't think that marching and giving money and taking classes is enough. And so... Um, I'm hoping that I can get some of that from here. Hey, Richard. Well, uh, also class of 63. Um, I'm a writer, journalist. Uh, my two most recent books, just one just published, is called Just Action. And, and that's all about what you can do at all this right. point. And um, the previous one, The Color of Law, I just an hour ago heard from my publisher that after six years, it's back on the New York Times bestseller list, which I find Oh, unfathomable. Wow. I don't understand. I understand. Maybe it's the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. Maybe it's, um, I don't know. I just can't figure well, it out. It doesn't make great any sense. Look. Great. Um, Congratulations. Eight years ago, <laughs> I was in, uh, in graduate school and Richard came uh, and did a debate at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And that was when I first picked up his book and have since uh, uh, given it to many, many, many people as their sort of introduction to the history of housing segregation. So it's it's a deeply important book. Great, great, good. Jerry. Good morning, uh, Jerry Secundi. I'm in Pasadena, California, class of 63. Uh, I'm still trying to teach David Othmer how to speak Spanish, but yeah, what can I say? Uh, <laughs> I grew up in uh, Mayfair Mansions in Washington, DC, uh, public black housing. And when I hear you talk about Tacoma and Silver Spring, we were never allowed to go to those areas. So the world has changed is all I can say. Um, Ann Huberman, uh, class of 63, a retired academic librarian and now a climate activist. And I'm in Greenfield, New Hampshire today at my summer place, the lakes right over there where I intend to jump in when finished. <laughs> uh, so that's it. Okay, David Allen. Concord, Mass, uh, right outside Boston, uh, early parts of my life, business, uh, university. I only came to activism in the later years. Uh, the rest of you got a hell of a jump on me, uh, but it's uh, no less fervent. 
democracy is my topic. Certainly looking forward to today. Okay, Alden. Uh, Alden Briscoe, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, just south of San Francisco. Um, I have not read your book, and I blame that on Kent because uh, a couple of speakers ago, uh, we had Ned Blackhawk here, and I'm reading his upon my way through his history of uh, the United, well, history of the U.S. or North America. Uh, but I'll hope to get to your book when I get finished with that one. Okay, Hamp. Hamp, uh, Hamp Howell, class of 63, not enough uh, integrity to retire yet. Uh, I, I, I like my psycho psychotherapy work too much, 80% uh, of the time. Okay, George. George Jones, class of 63, currently living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. All right, Marcy. <laughs> I run Clean Air Campaign, and it's Open Rivers Project and Archives Project and Disinformation Project in New York City, and I don't have air conditioning. Okay. <laughs> and finally, Robbie, uh, Robbie Pressman. Yes, hi, welcome. <clears throat> nice to be here. Um, I was very excited to hear about this group since when my former husband and I were graduate students at Harvard, um, he actually um, coordinated all the Woolworth uh, sit-ins uh, for the Boston area, and we were very involved uh, in fundraising for the Freedom Riders and for um, the um, uh, helping stick down, down south. We actually uh, uh, many a number of us graduate students actually filled the Boston Garden where we had Bella, <clears throat> Harry Belafonte come and sing and raise money for um, for all those those efforts down south. So that was great times, and uh, it's just interesting to see that you've tried to capture some of those things, Keith. So I'm delighted to be here. I'm I'm currently I'm for a retired psychologist, and I currently live in Oakland, California, and I work um, through a lot with the what's called the village movement. Um, I'm working currently on ageism and particularly how that affects health care for older adults and trying to do something about that locally. Okay, Allison, you on? I'm here. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, I'm Allison Cindy Wardle, class of uh, 63. And I um, was interested in just in hearing, uh, you know, the, the talk tonight about Thomas Jefferson and perhaps a slightly different view from what we learned in high school. I live in Italy in Rodden County. Okay. And finally, Clint, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. I am uh, Clint Smith. I'm the author of How the Word is Passed. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine. Um, and I'm, uh, class of, I'm a PhD class of 2020. Um, so I got my, my doctorate at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It all started in 2017 when I watched several Confederate statues come down in my hometown in New Orleans, statues of PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee. And as I was watching those statues come down, I was thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. And thinking about, well, what are the implications of that? What does it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard? To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway. That my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy. That my parents still live on a street today. 
named after someone who owned over 115 slave people. Because the thing is, we know that symbols and names and iconography aren't just symbols. They're reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy is what shapes the material conditions of people's lives. And, and that's not to say that if you just take down a 60 foot tall statue of Robert E. Lee, you suddenly erase the racial wealth gap or, you know, you take down the name of Jefferson Davis Parkway and you suddenly create more economically egalitarian schools. But it does help us recognize the sort of ecosystem of ideas and stories and narratives that help ground our collective understanding of American history and help shape the way that we make sense of how certain communities have been intentionally and disproportionately harmed throughout American history. So it started in New Orleans and I was looking around and I was trying to say, well, who are the people and what are the places here that are telling the story um, and what are the places that aren't? And then a part of what I realized is that the story was much bigger than New Orleans. And, and I began to travel across the country, uh, visiting different monuments, memorials, historical sites, cemeteries, prisons, plantations, um, all sorts of places that have a relationship to the history of slavery. And I was interested in examining which places are actively reckoning with that history, which places are running from that history, and which places are doing something sort of in between. Uh, and so travel spent, I started my research in 2017, the book was published in 2021. Um, and so spent four years traveling, um, or up until, you know, up until COVID, uh, traveling around, around the country and across the Atlantic, trying to make sense of this history. Um, and so, for example, one of the places that I go is Monticello Plantation. And Monticello is, as many of us know, the home of Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, one of our founding fathers. And it felt really important for me to go to Monticello because Jefferson, in so many ways, I think, embodies the, the cognitive dissonance of the American project, which is to say that he is someone who wrote the one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world, and also someone who enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He's someone who wrote in his draft of the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, and then wrote in notes on the state of Virginia that uh, black people are likely inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind. He said that slave was incapable of love to the same extent that their white counterparts were. He said that the slave was incapable of possessing or sustaining complex emotion, wrote about Phyllis Wheatley, uh, the sort of foremother of African-American letters, the first black woman to publish a book of poetry in the history of the United States. He said that her work was below the dignity of criticism that it wasn't even worth engaging with because he didn't think that black people had the emotional or intellectual capacity or creative dexterity with which to create beautiful things. And he was like, we call this something else, but we can't call it poetry because black people don't possess the intellectual and artistic acumen with which to create art. And so I think about that and I think about how that's a version of Jefferson that I was never taught. And I think about how Monticello is a place that is so fascinating because it is meant to capture um, and convey and communicate the essence of this man um, to the wider public. And again, I think that Jefferson is sort of embodies the the in a, the sort of ethical inconsistency of this country because America itself is a place that you know is provided opportunity for millions of Americans across generations in ways that their own ancestors could have never imagined. And it's also done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And both of those things 
are the story of America. It's not one over here and one over there. You get to pick this one and pick that one. It's that both are true and that you have to hold both realities alongside one another. Uh, and so I went to Monticello because I think that Monticello is so fascinating as a place that, you know, that it is a place that 20, 25, 30, 40 years ago, the way that they told the story of themselves uh, was not is not the same as how they tell the story of themselves now. It's a place that I think reflects the fact that historical institutions are are not static and that they can change over time. And how Monticello tells the story of Jeff, who Jefferson is today is very different than how it previously told the story of who Jefferson was. Um, and I think that that is really important for these historical sites to, to recognize um, that they can also evolve in the way that they communicate the legacy. They can also tell a fuller, more honest, more robust story of this country. I encounter people all the time, and maybe some of you who went to Monticello, you know, when they, uh, you know, many years ago, and they'll tell me they didn't hear one word about slavery on their tour. They didn't hear one word about Sally Hemings on their tour. They didn't hear one word about Jefferson being the father of enslaved children. Um, and so, so it is a place that represents that you can, if you have the right leadership, and if you are intentional and thoughtful and reflective, you can begin to tell a different more honest story about who you are and don't have to be singularly tied to the story of who you've been. Um, another place I went was Angola prison. Angola prison is the largest maximum security prison in Louis in the country. It's in Louisiana, uh, where it is a place where 75% uh, of the people held there are black men over 70% of them are serving life sentences. And it's built on top of a former plantation. And, you know, I went on a trip to Germany, um, a year or so ago uh, for a story that I wrote for The Atlantic about how Germany memorializes the Holocaust. And I will always remember the moment where I walked into Dachau uh, for the first time, my first time at a concentration camp. You look to your left, you see the remnants of the crematorium. You look to the right, you see the skeletons of the barracks. It's this vast, haunting, unsettling expanse of gray. And I just tried to do this thought exercise where I imagined what it would be like if on that land, someone had built a prison. And in that prison, the vast majority of the people held there were Jewish. And I couldn't even finish the thought exercise because it was so viscerally upsetting. It was so abhorrent to imagine that that would ever be done because it would run counter to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. It would be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. It would be disgusting in every way there is to describe it as such. And yet, here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country, where the vast majority of people are black men serving life sentences, many of whom were sentenced as children, given that the United States is the only country in the world that sentences children to life without the possibility of parole, many of whom were sentenced by non-unanimous juries, which has since been rendered unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States for being an explicit vestige of white supremacy, who are working in fields, picking crops for virtually no money, while someone watches over them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. And so part of what I'm thinking about when I'm at Angola are what are the ways that a history of a specific history of anti-blackness allows a place like Angola to exist in this way, on this land, in a way that we would never allow in a different geopolitical context. And what are the specific manifestations of that? What are the specific ways that we have failed in our sort of collective historical reckoning um, to allow that place to, to persist in the way that it exists. And what does it mean that Angola has a gift shop 
And at the Angola gift shop, you can buy coffee mugs or shot glasses or uh, T-shirts and sweatshirts and baseball caps and stuffed animals dressed in prison uniforms that on some of the coffee mugs you can buy, uh, it has the silhouette of a watchtower. And then above and below the watchtower, it reads Angola, a gated community, as if to make a mockery of or belittle the experiences of the thousands of people and over time, the tens of thousands of people who've been incarcerated there. And I was there with a guy named Norris Henderson. Norris was incarcerated in Angola for almost 30 years and is now out and sort of leads the prison reform movement in Louisiana and, and really, you know, one of the leading uh, voices of the formerly incarcerated who are advocating for prison reform across the country. And we were on this sort of shuttle bus that was leaving the, the prison. And Norris looked out the window and I was sitting next to him. And in the distance, we saw these men who were working in the fields and they were lifting their garden hose into the air and digging them into the earth, lifting their garden hose into the air, digging them into the earth, lifting their shovels, digging them into the earth. And Norris turned to me and he opened his hands and his hands had these calluses on them from all these years he spent working in the fields. And he was like, Clint, I can't begin to explain to you what it felt like to pick cotton for seven cents an hour while someone watches over me on horseback and wondering if these were the same fields that my ancestors picked cotton in 200 years ago, right? So for the people who are incarcerated in Angola, this history is not an abstraction. It's not a metaphor. It's not uh, an intellectual exercise. It's something that's in their bodies. It's in their bones. It's in the calluses in their hands. Um, it's very real. It says the scholar Sadia Hartman talks about, she says, uh, talks about prisons as, as being one manifestation of the afterlife of slavery, the way that slavery, the legacy of slavery continues to shape our social, political, and economic infrastructure. Um, and then the last part I'll, I'll mention, um, and then happy to have conversation with you all for the rest of the time, is um, the epilogue of the book is I go to the National Museum of African American History and Culture with my grandparents. My grandfather born in 1930, Jim Crow, Mississippi, and my grandmother born in 1939, Jim Crow, Florida. And I had a conversation, yeah, we're walking through the museum, which I hope many of you have gotten the opportunity to to visit. If you haven't, it's it, you absolutely must. Um, and we're walking through the museum and I'm pushing my grandfather in his wheelchair. You know, he's he's now almost 93 years old um, and I'm pushing him in his wheelchair. It's cane laid across his lap and I'm walking through the museum and I'm watching them watch all of the exhibits and observe all the exhibits around them. And I have this moment where I realize that so much of the history that's documented in this museum are things that they've experienced firsthand. And my grandmother, I, I have a conversation with her her later and my, my then sort of six month old daughter is sitting in her lap and we're sitting around my kitchen table having this discussion. And she was like, she kept using this refrain. She said, I lived it, I lived it, I lived it. And I think about how my grandfather, how you think about how the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture, who rang the bell next to the Obama family to sort of signal the opening, a woman named Ruth Bonner, um, she was the daughter of an enslaved person, right? Not the granddaughter, not the great granddaughter, the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2016 was the daughter of a man who was born into slavery. I think about how my grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. You know, so my, uh, you know, then three-year-old son sits on my grandfather's lap. I imagine him sitting on his grandfather's lap. And I imagine 
and and recognize how the history that we tell ourselves was a long time ago simply wasn't that long ago at all. Um, and I, and that's what I've been thinking about so much is is that you know I I remember when I learned about slavery it was as if if it was something that happened in the Jurassic period, like the dinosaurs, the Flintstones, and slavery as if they were all at the same time. And you you get older and you, and you realize that there are people who are alive today, who knew, who loved, who were raised by people who were born into chattel slavery, uh, and that this history is not. This history is still with us in the most profound of ways. Um, it is still shaping the social, political, and economic infrastructure of our country. Um, it is still in the air. It's still in the soil. Uh, it's still in the bodies of people who who walk among us. And so, uh, part of what I began this book thinking about was how I can get a better sense of our collective physical proximity to this history. But I think in the end, I learned as much about our collective temporal proximity. To this history, um, and again, that this this history that we tell ourselves was a long time ago simply simply wasn't that long ago at all. I think we're all profoundly moved by what you've just said. Um, I certainly know I am. Um, I guess what I'm interested in is what you're working on now. Again, because I have read the book, and so I, I have some sense of what the book says. I'm, I'm interested in, in where you're going now and what you're advices to white people um so those are my questions at the moment yeah i uh so i just had a collection of poetry i have a collection of poetry that just came out a few months ago um because i'm i'm a poet i began my writing career as a poet um and so i have my first book was in 2016 um a collection of poetry sort of about coming of age as a young black child in this country how the Warriors Past came out in 2021. And then this book, uh, which came out in March of this year, uh, is largely about the sort of simultaneity of the human experience, how we move through the world carrying joy and love and laughter in, in the same at the same moment where we carry a sense of despair, anxiety, and fear. Um, and specifically through the prism of parenthood. And uh, you have a six-year-old and a four-year-old and thinking about how parenthood is is this thing that is at once the most remarkable, beautiful, joyous thing one can make a decision to do. Um, and it also is one of the most exhausting and one of the most difficult and one of the most humbling. Um, and obviously when it's animated by raising black children um, in this country, what it means to raise children who fill you with so much joy amid a history and a contemporary reality um, that is filled with the backdrop of social, political, economic, ecological catastrophe. Um, and so how, again, I'm interested, I'm always interested in all of my book projects in this sort of both andedness of, of what it means to be human. Um, and how, you know, there's both andedness and how we understand America, the good and the bad of America. There's both andedness and how we understand people like Jefferson. There's both andedness and how we make sense of our own lives, right? Um, and our relationships to the country and our relationship to ourselves. And so that's that book came out uh, recently. So I've been working on, uh, on that. Um, and my next project is a book about World War II. So I mentioned that I went, uh, I wrote a, the cover story for the Atlantic in December of this past year, or December of yeah, 2022. Um, 
in which I traveled to Germany to try to get a sense of how Germany told the story of the Holocaust through its monuments and its memorials. Um, and that was because of the work that I had done in How the Word Is Passed, I got really interested in, in the story of iconography and what uh, iconography can tell us about how a nation, how a group of people, how a community accounts for and atones for its past. Um, and so when I was there, I it was just so striking because as I mentioned, I, I had, I think my, my previous understanding of World War II um, was sort of singularly shaped by you know, Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers. Um, and I didn't have, you know, and and, and uh, books like Anne Frank's Diary and Number of the Stars, but but for me, so much, there's so much power. And this is why I wrote How the Word is Passed in the way that I did in putting your body in the place where history happened. Um, for me, it's one thing to read about the Holocaust and it is another thing to stand in a concentration camp. It's another thing to walk through the crematorium, to walk through the gas chamber, to touch the walls where people took their final breaths, to, to have my feet move across the same pieces of gravel that, you know, 80 years ago, people walked across as they walked to their death, to, to stand on the train platforms before families were uh, taken to these death camps to Staying in front of the homes. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about the Stolperstein. I don't know if you're all familiar with those, the stumbling stones that exist in front of the homes uh, in many in Germany, but across Europe, where they have the names, birth dates, death dates, and um, final destinations, so to speak, of people who were persecuted by the Nazis, Jewish people and others. And so you'll walk down the streets of Berlin, for example, and you'll pass a home. It's these 10 by 10, 10 centimeter brass stones. And they're sort of embedded into the sidewalk in front of the homes. Further down the street, and you see four. Further down the street, you see five. Further down the street, you see seven. You look at, and you look down at the names, and because of the birth date and death date, you can tell who were the children, who were the parents. You can imagine who the grandparents may have been. Imagine who the cousin may. Have. And you look at these buildings, you look up at these homes, these apartments, and it gives you this profound sense of uh, proximity to that history and a profound sense of intimacy. Uh, and I find that to be the case with so many of these monuments, so many of these historical landmarks. And and for me, my after writing that piece, and spending a year working on it, my understanding of the Holocaust was transformed. Um, it was no longer an abstract number of 6 million, but it was, it was individual children. It was individual people. Um, it was individual families. Um, the stakes of it, the recency of it, right? Really, really understanding like, oh, this was you know, slavery was not that long ago. The Holocaust was was in the scheme of, of history and was just yesterday. Um, and so for me, I got really interested in learning about more parts of World War II and bringing the same sort of conceit that I used in How the Word is Passed of going to historical landmarks and historical sites and monuments, memorials, using that same approach, but thinking about World War II sites. And so I've, uh, I'm sort of in the middle of that project now. I've been to uh, California, where I spent time at some Japanese internment camps with people who's, who were the descendants of um, the children and grandchildren and people who were held there. I um, went to the Navajo Reservation uh, in New Mexico and spent time with one of the three remaining, uh, the three surviving Navajo co-talkers um, and members of their family. 
I am going to Hiroshima, Nagasaki, um, going to uh, Seoul to try to spend time with people who were um, forced into sex slavery by the Japanese military, Korean women who were forced into sex slavery, comfort women, as they're often called, uh, hoping to go to Argentina, um, to this town in southern Argentina where many of the Nazis fled, uh, and to think about what it means to have this German enclave in the middle of um, the South American country. Um, hoping to go to Tunisia to think about the North African front of the war, hoping to go to Jamaica to think about Caribbean soldiers who fought on behalf of uh, the of Great Britain. Um, there's so many places to go, thinking about Guam and the Philippines that exist at the nexus of uh, Japanese imperialism and American colonialism. Um, so those, so I'm I'm sort of broadening my scope, if you will. Um, I'm, I was really moved by this essay that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in, uh, I believe, in 1949, um, after he visited the the former Warsaw Ghetto in Poland, and he talked about how visiting Poland after the war, you know, in this place where three million Jewish people were killed, he said it sort of stripped him of a sort of social provincialism that his sense of the interconnectedness of violence and of state sanctioned violence around the world became so much more robust, so much more sophisticated. Um, he didn't have a provincial sense of what violence looked like and that he was able to place the violence, the anti-Black violence that Black Americans experienced in conversation with the anti-Semitism that Jewish people experienced in Europe. And, and I experienced similar thing, right? Like part of what I did in the piece was put place the experience of Jewish memory in in, Berlin, in Germany in conversation with the experience of uh, the memory of, around American slavery here in the United States. So, um, so that is that's a long way of saying that that is my next project, um, and I have been working on it for a little while now, and I, I probably have um, some years left of working on it. it. Necessitates a lot of travel, and I have two small kids with a lot of soccer practices. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> But it's it's been really um, it's been really moving. And and the second part of that, what would I say to white people? I mean, I I think that for me, you know, the short of it, is, the long and the short of it is that it's about the conversations you're having when no black person is in the room. I, I think it's like, are you having these conversations? Are you bringing up these things when you're not going to get a pat on the back for it? When you're not going to be able to feel good about it because you're saying it in front of somebody who will tell you. They appreciate it. So what does it mean to do it when there are no plaudits, when there are no, uh, when there's no affirmation, when, when you in fact might get pushback from friends or members of your family? Um, I think that's when it's hard and it's not easy. You know, I would never suggest like, oh, you just got to tell racist, racist Uncle Joe or racist cousin Joe, like, you know, that they're right. It's, it's, it's difficult. And, and, and I think that these things, there's no one-stop approach to it. You, it depends on who you're talking to, who you're engaging with. Um, you know your family and your friends and neighbors better than anyone, and you know who necessitates a softer approach and who necess necessitates maybe something a little, uh, maybe some more tough love. But, but I think ultimately that's um, one of the most important things um, to make sure that th these conversations are not only being facilitated and catalyzed by uh, by Black Americans or Indigenous Americans or whoever the group is. Um, but instead that, you know, it's white people having the conversations with other white people. Um, as a preliminary thing, I want to say that uh, my parents were in Berlin and in 1933, 
just shortly after Hitler came to power, my grandmother said, we got to get out of here. Mm. And, you know, she was among the early ones and they finally got to America. And mm. that's why I'm here today. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, the importance of being on in the place where it happened, like Monticello. And I was wondering, because I mentioned Sandy Spring earlier, there's a place called uh, Woodlawn Manor there mm -hmm. in Sandy Spring. And I was wondering whether you have ever been there because it has been, um, you know, there were enslaved people there. And then they, um, I had the good fortune to work on a project where we filmed narratives based on the lives of both enslaved people there and um, the Quakers and slave owners who were there. And they're now projected on the walls of this manor. So you can go here, you know, you can go there and see these things. And I, I was wondering whether you think narratives like that can actually move the needle and make yeah. people think things they haven't thought before and feel things they haven't felt before. Absolutely. Um, to your first point, um, I've been thinking a lot about the folks who who tried to escape Germany and, and different European countries before uh, before 1939. Um, I've been watching the, and maybe some of you have seen it also, the Ken Burns documentary came out. Yeah, there's footage ago. of my parents in there. Oh, oh wow, that's incredible. Um, but yeah, I've, I learned so much from that um, about the history of the U.S., you know, preventing, you know, so many uh, Jewish people from uh, from immigrating to the United States, seeking refuge and asylum in the United States. Um, and even in some cases, you know, there's the famous case of the, the ship that was forced to turn around um, when it reached Cuba, uh, because mm -hmm. there was, you know, Cuba didn't want them, America didn't want them. Um, and that group of, you know, it was almost a thousand Jewish people on, on that ship who were sent back and you know, hundreds of them ended up being killed in the Holocaust. Um, and so that that film really brilliant, brilliantly outlines um, how even those who wanted to escape, you know, in 1933 yeah. and between 33 and 39 were uh, were often prevented from doing so. Um, so so that's I can't imagine um, your parents and, and grandparents experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so have I been, I haven't been, I have heard, I'm familiar with the, the manor. I haven't been up there yet. Um, it's on my list. I want to go there and recently just reopened the Frederick Douglass house in Washington, DC, which have been closed since the beginning of COVID. Um, and so those, you know, Maryland and the Washington DC, Maryland area has like a really robust um, sort of ecosystem of historical sites uh, tied to slavery it, in such a fascinating history because Maryland was, a border state that both had many free black people, more free black people than any other any other state in the country, um, but also you know was a place where tens of thousands of black Americans were were enslaved, um, and and so I'm I'm hoping to go there and do narrative. What role do narratives play? I mean, they play an immense role. It's as I said. I think humans are drawn to stories. You know, it's it is not as as powerful as statistics are. Um, as meaningful as, as that sort of data can be, I, it is, again, for me, like it, the number, the Holocaust, I understood largely as 6 million, right? Rather than this child, this man, this woman, this family. Um, and when you, you know, one of the most powerful things about the 
memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, the museum that exists underneath it in Berlin, is that it is, it's very small, it's very intimate, but you see, I think what are real letters that were sent from um, children, you know, who were like in, in many of these ghettos across uh, Poland and across Europe, who were sending letters to their to their parents, parents who were sending letters to their children, sit brothers and sisters who were sending letters to each other, and, and just the, the sense of fear, the sense of despair, the sense of longing, the, the desperation that exudes from these I mean, it is, it's, it's among the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen and read. And so any, and there's so many different ways to do that. There are also places where you can go and listen to the voices of, um, families who who did escape or were trying to escape. So yeah, I, I think that narratives play an immense role um, in shaping our understanding of of these things um, and and give give texture um, to to the statistics that we're often inundated with. And, and you've spent some time at um, uh, at Monticello. How is the best way to memorialize these places? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and I think the maybe unsatisfying answer is that it depends so much on each place, you know, I, I, and I, I think part of it is that each place has to accept what we have to accept is that there is no such thing as a perfect memorial. There is no such thing as a perfect monument. All they will all be insufficient. They will all no memorial to slavery to the Holocaust, to indigenous genocide, whatever the case may be. No memorial can ever be commensurate with the violence that was enacted on these groups of people. It's, it's simply impossible. Um, and the, the guy who made the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, in, which is in downtown Berlin, is this massive 200,000 square foot memorial filled with huge stone columns yeah. um, that you walk through. And it's this fa fa very haunting experience because the yeah. ground goes up and down. And um, I'm sure you, you're, you and many others might be familiar with it. But I remember reading the, a letter from the architect who put it together. And he said, it's, in, you know, as we can, this is the biggest monument of its sort in the world. And, and it doesn't come even like one one iota um, close to the, you know, obviously the, the harm that representing the harm that was done. So, but I think the reality is that we have to try and monuments are not meant to necessarily be commensurate with the harm that happened or the, they are meant to serve as signals and reminders. And I think entry points into helping facilitate ongoing conversation about the thing, like the putting up the statue or laying down the stumbling stone or building the museum is not the end goal, right? What it is, is it's actually the first step in order to ensure that you are creating a space that's going to continue to cultivate uh, discourse uh, uh, and, and, and maintain the memory of whatever the, the phenomena is. Um, and, and so much of this is, is based on like the hyperlocal realities of the place, you know, what, what memorialization looks like in any particular community should be shaped not by some sort of mandate, you know, federal or UN mandate necessarily, even though it can be informed by best practices, but it should be in conversation with the specific history of that location. Um, and, and that might mean different things for the leadership um, of that place that might mean 
different things for, um, you know, what sort of, you know, I, I know the conversation that's been happening over the last several years is like, what do you do with these Confederate monuments that come down? And I think that looks different for every place. There are some places, I think like Richmond, which decided to uh, melt the statue of Robert E. Lee and then make it into, um, there's some places like Richmond, which I think are melting the, the statues and then are um, going to then use that same material to make new statues. There are some places that are going to put them in museums. There are some places that are going to put them uh, and do all sorts of different things with them, contextualize them in different ways. And I think it really depends on on the specific um, place. And it's a decision that should be made on a hyperlocal level, not uh, from a decision that's been imposed from, from 30,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And every now and then, you know, I think we've made such wonderful progress. And then you kind of drag me back to the past is what it amounts to. Uh, my dad was white and Jewish. He lost half of his extended family in the Holocaust. My mom's black. Um, and I, I just, I, I wonder sometimes just how far we've come and are we ever going to regress uh, back to those days. But my specific question is about Angola. Uh, the prison that you're describing, I was not familiar with it, is just uh, horrific. Uh, the Europeans have really tried hard to reform their prison systems. Do you see any attempt of the United States <clears throat> to really reform ours and really look at rehabilitation as opposed to just punishment? I think, again, this is sort of both and in this to the response, but I think it is both true that where pris our prison system is in 2023 relative to where it was in 1993, uh, certainly 1963, is is that they are, because of public pressure, because of the efforts to bring attention to mass incarceration, because of the work of activists and advocates and formerly incarcerated folks, uh, our prisons are, you know, it, it doesn't feel right to call a prison humane, um, but our prisons are forced to be more accommodating to the needs of people, which isn't to say that they are doing a good job, um, but it is to say, I, I do think it's always important to acknowledge like that where progress has been made. And so, you know, if we look at the was nature of mass incarceration in 1993 versus 2023, um, less people are in prison um, and prisons by large, obviously it depends on the place, are um, not as, do not represent the same level of violent threat to the bodies and psyches of um, people in prison. Again, I want to emphasize that that doesn't mean it's fine and that they're good places, but that there are, um, that progress has been made. But, you know, I think that part of the reality is that our, our country's collective sense of like what prisons are for distorts our ability to make thoughtful choices around public policy and our prison system, um, which is to say that, you know, I, I think all the time about my dissertation was about how the relation, how children sentenced to life without parole experience educational program while they're in prison. The very existence of life without parole for children um, runs counter to any notion of justice that I believe in. The idea that you would tell a 15, 16, 17 year old that they're gonna spend the rest of their lives in prison for something they did when they were a child um, 
it doesn't it doesn't make scientific sense it, it, you know it doesn't make um empirical sense uh and yet because we view prisons as punitive rather than rehabilitative and because we are not um in the business collectively of of forgiveness, of healing, then I think um, it makes it hard to have those conversations because our so much of our of the messages that we're inundated with are this idea of lock lock them up and throw away the key, and that you know as Brian Stevenson says that we often define people by the worst thing they've ever done or the worst mistake they've ever made, um, rather than understanding the full context of the system and the and the circumstances that led them into. Um, this reality, you know, I've worked in prisons for several, for many years, um, largely sort of teaching, writing, and reading. And one thing you you begin to learn very quickly about our prison system is that the vast, vast majority of people in there come from poverty. It's that is that is the sort of through line, yeah, through the most people. And and poverty, especially when you're a child in poverty, when you're anybody in poverty, when you're a child in poverty, it it does it physiologically impacts you and your brain and your body and the decisions and your executive function. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. A lot of important, great scholars and activists are doing really important work. Um, but, but we have to create, the bottom line I think is that we need to do a better job of creating the social um, infrastructure outside of prison that prevents so many people from becoming part of the pipeline to our prison system in the first place. I think we're a quite attentive group and and we've had a lot of very good presentations, but I've uh, never seen everybody, everybody as intent on the presentation as today. And I think that's partly because of the vividness of how you're talking, Clint, and, and the way you're reaching across generations. So the accuracy and compassion of what you're communicating is moving me very, much. I'm very grateful to you. Uh, I do have a question, but I also want to say when we talk about the climate, the, the prisons, uh, let's just say that uh, the elimination of for-profit prisons is a, a an immediate need. Um, my own parents, hey. my, my grandparents led the pogroms in uh, the Ukraine. My mother came from an anti-Semitic German family and was disowned for marrying my father. Uh, so uh, my parents in 1936 uh, stepped out against the biases that existed. Uh, my question for you is, you know, I'm very grateful to you for having reached into the reality of the anti-Semitism as a black man. Um, I have trouble understanding and I've never studied and I wonder if you're exploration have given you insight as to the actual causes of anti-Semitic genocide. It seems pretty clear to me that the cause of, you know, white colonialist imperialists stealing the land of the Native Americans and the bodies of the Black people had to do, you know, with private property and ownership and wealth. But what did it have to do with the Jews? I think of people as being inherently good, except for the ways they were trained to be uh, influenced otherwise. So do you have an explanation for the, the root cause of, of the uh, anti-Semitic genocides? 
you know i'm i'm not as well versed on that um on the sort of origins of it yet uh, but in the context of world war ii i mean you know part of what i understand is that the Jew jewish people have long been um served as a scapegoat uh, and have been caricatured um and anti-semitism is is a long um unsettling yet robust history um but that you know the the ss uh the socialist party led by hitler you know in the early 19th early 20th century um used jewish people as the scapegoat for the germans um sort of economic um struggles following world war one um and and sort of blame them for what was happening in germany and in europe uh during the great depression and, and in the difficult times afterwards and so uh they became because of many of the professions that jewish uh, people held they were um used as scapegoats to say that it, these are you know these jewish folks are the reason that you don't have enough food to feed your family. They are the reason you don't have uh, a home to live in. They are the reason that we are struggling as a as a country. That we are that the reason we lost the war. Um, and I think there was so much populist fervor um, that sort of gathered, you know, and a lot of steam that gathered behind that idea, and uh, and they exploited it in the way that that authoritarians do. And and obviously it had. Um, Horrific, horrific consequences. I'm, I'm very impressed by your whole presentation and particularly that you're stressing on the visual, making visible the story. Uh, my, uh, my wife uh, was fortunate enough to get out of Argentina just in time. Uh, she got a, uh, a she, she had an opportunity to travel on a fellowship to, to the United States and and this was right after the after the military coup that began the uh, the, the the regime of terror, uh, and she had she had always intended to go back, but people she knew said don't. And people who had been her teachers, people who had been her classmates, you know, they were they were eliminated, um, disappeared, and she's and with her I've, I've been back to. Argentina and also Uruguay, and we have seen the monuments that they have created to make this make people aware of what happened. And of course, Argentina has has actually compared to other countries has done marvelously in actually bringing all that history uh, to attention. Um, I, th I thought Chile had done much less, but um, Uruguay also has uh, a wall with the names of the, of the people. And I think that this does have an impact. Uh, and one other, one other slight thing, that this is sort of like a, a, a footnote to what you were talking about. Um, we also had an opportunity to, uh, to go to Ghana. This was also for an architectural conference. Um, and uh, we saw, and it seemed to me that in Ghana, along the, what was called the Gold Coast, uh, those forts had been turned into memorials that very effectively uh, show you what what it was like, what the slave trade was like. Clint, you have uh, brought home the impact of actually physically being standing where history occurred. Uh, I just want to say how much that resonated for someone who had been an infantry officer in the Vietnam era, standing the 75th 
Normandy anniversary on that beach and frankly being overwhelmed imagining what that must have been for those 90% of whom died. A question, sir. Um, have you considered politics? I mentioned that <laughs> my interest is democracy. We are in, frankly, we plain about it, and we all know it, desperate need of eloquence on the stump. You may, you said your doctorate was, what, three years ago? You may think it's a bit early. Yes, it may be. Have you considered politics, Clint? <laughs> it's, it's very kind of you. Um, I, I, uh, at this point, I have not. Um, I, uh, my wife um, has, is, has worked in politics. She's worked um, on the Hill and in the State Department and for various um, congressional members. So I've, I've seen the, how the sausage is made um, and it's not, it's not pretty. Um, it's not pretty. It's but so uh, pretty. I, so I, I don't know that I'm, you know, you, you never, never say never, but I don't, uh, I don't know that I have the, um, the disposition for, um, for so much of what is necessary to be successful in that world. But, but I appreciate it. It's very kind of you to, to think of me for that. I'm so sorry to say how right you are about that. However, know that from this generation, you would have the most extraordinary support and we're not evil folk. <laughs> well, Clint, thank you so much for coming on. It was really great. Absolutely. Thank you all really so much. And good luck on your projects. That was Clint Smith. His book is titled How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.